this idea of gospel, um, this, which means good news, it's the Greek word euangelion, such an important term that I think we have misunderstood because before the story of Jesus, the word gospel is really more of a political term. And so, the, the gospel, the good news, the euangelion that most people knew before the birth of Jesus was um, the gospel of Rome. In fact, um, about six years uh, before the birth of Jesus in uh, a city that uh, is now in modern Turkey, um, we found an ancient inscription, and uh, it says, the birthday of Augustus, Augustus Caesar, has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the euangelion concerning him. The inscription goes on to say, the most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. He has brought our life to the climax of perfection. He has been sent to us and our descendants as Savior. He has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. This was the gospel everybody knew. The gospel the Roman world knew was the gospel of Augustus Caesar. It was the gospel of Pax Romana. It was the gospel that um, the good news, our nation, has become stable because of this great leader and his heirs. And because of them, we have uh, a Savior, Augustus Caesar, a God, Augustus Caesar. We're going to reorder our calendars around his birthday. And then this guy, um, who's pretty unknown, named John Mark, says, I'm going to write a book about Jesus, and I'm going to begin it, uh, and I'm going to say that the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, isn't really about Caesar Augustus at all. The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him, but the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, is what Mark wants to tell. Um, Mark begins and ends this section with that same language. You notice he ends with Jesus saying he's come to proclaim the gospel of God, that we should repent and believe in the gospel. Um, Mark is making a political challenge to the Roman Empire. He's saying, you have claimed that your leader is Savior and God, but actually we think it's someone else. We think there's somebody else who's our Savior. We think there's someone else who's our God. It's this figure, Jesus, that I'm going to tell you about. Jesus is actually good news, not Caesar. And by the way, um, we're going to order our calendars around the life of this man and not around the life of Julius Caesar. And so, six years before the birth of Christ is how we date this inscription. The beginning of Mark is the beginning of the good news of Jesus that another kingdom is coming, that the kingdoms of this world cannot withstand it. As we've thought about the story of Mark this year, um, I've broken it up into sections, and I've called those sections by 
um, components of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not in the Gospel of Mark. It's in Matthew and in Luke. Um, but as I read through the Lord's Prayer, it seemed like it was beautifully summarizing the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And so, this section, this first section of Mark, um, we're calling Thy Kingdom Come because it's about the coming kingdom of Jesus and its conflict with the kingdoms of this world. This is particularly relevant in the Gospel of Mark. So, in July 18th, uh, 64 A.D., 64 years after the birth of Jesus, there was a fire that started in Rome and lasted six days, and it was devastating. It's called the Great Fire of Rome. About 71% of the city was destroyed, 10 out of 14 city districts. It was cataclysmic. After this fire, everybody wanted to know who could be blamed, and the general consensus was that it was probably the Emperor Nero. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for this. A lot of them seemed pretty convincing. Nero wasn't a great guy. A lot of folks thought Nero started the fire so he could build a bigger palace and it got out of hand. But Nero, um, as public opinion was turning against him, needed a scapegoat. And so, in 64 AD, Nero looks around his empire, and particularly in the city of Rome, for somebody he can blame this huge disaster on. And he says, ah, there's this weird new religion that's shown up in Rome. Uh, they're called Christians. Let's blame it on them. And so, Nero blames the great fire of Rome on this new Christian movement in his city. Uh, and as he does so, it elicits this huge persecution and uh, the, the beginning of the really first persecution by the government of the Christian people. And during this time in the um, mid-60s AD, both Peter and Paul, the two great pillars of the church, are murdered in Rome for their faith. And there's this guy who was their friend. Uh, this guy named John Mark, or Mark, who had traveled extensively with Paul on his missionary journeys, who had been a translator for Peter as he traveled around the world, who said, wow, my two great mentors, the two great leaders of the church are dead. Who's going to keep telling the story of Jesus? And Mark says, hey, maybe I should. And Mark starts writing down what he'd heard from Peter about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And he does so as a challenge to the other gospels and the other kingdoms of His world, uh, that we should, even in the midst of this terrible persecution, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of Caesar. The gospel of Caesar is really tempting to believe in, right? It's, it's, it's tangible, and we can see it, and we can feel it. Uh, it's easy to say, hey, um, I trust in this nation, and if we just get the right leader for the country, everything's going to be great. And we get the wrong leader, everything's going to be totally falling apart. We're going to hell in a handbasket. Um, but Mark says, I'm not sure that's quite as critical as you think. He said, well, we just got to find the right corporate leader. There are there are some people that just really get it, and they're going to lead our economy, and they're going to make good things. And boy, I'll, if your device has an Apple logo on the back or has Lululemon on the shirt or has uh, the right insignia on the hood of your car, I'm going to buy it because I trust you, and I trust what you make. And, and maybe Mark says, I'm not sure that's the gospel either. Mark wants us to recognize the, the whole story of this gospel is this proclamation that there's a new king that's here. There's a new set of good news, someone else that we can trust who's not 
government or corporate or um, an influencer or a friend. It's not the gospel of popularity or the gospel of prettiness. It's the gospel of Jesus with this radical new way of encountering and experiencing the world that is a threat to all the other gospels. Mark says the king is here. So let's meet the king. We have really an interesting insight into the person of Jesus in this beginning. It's a great moment where he sort of appears on the scene. I was trying to think of other great moments where like heroes appear that really take your breath away. And I'm not showing this clip, but maybe you remember the Michael Keaton Batman movie. This is a great movie that's not child appropriate, but it's a great movie. Uh, and, and the opening scene of the Michael Keaton Batman movie, um, Batman comes up to these two robbers on a roof, and they're like really scared already, and he kind of beats them up a little bit, and they shoot him, and he falls down, and he gets back up, and he does this scary thing with his cape, and he grabs one guy, and he drags him over the side of the roof, and he holds him off the edge, uh, and the guy says, who are you? And he says, I'm Batman. <laughs> so great. And then he does this thing. Um, one of the great moments in all of uh, hero-appearing stories, um, Jesus has him beat, right? Uh, when Jesus shows up on the scene, it is incredible. So three things happen real quick in this story that help us get a sense of how amazing Jesus is going to be, um, more inspiring than Batman. Uh, and all three of these are, are unique um, because they have the Holy Spirit involved. They have... Um, something happening in a similar location all around the Jordan River in the wilderness. And they're all places where we get information the other characters don't. This is going to be really important as we read through the Gospel of Mark. Very often, we have information the other characters don't about who Jesus is. So, three quick things. The first one is that we're told this is written in the prophet Isaiah, a messenger is coming to ahead of you to prepare the way for you. He'll make the path straight for you. And we're told it's John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi. John the Baptist is dressed in the same clothes, camel's hair and a leather belt that Elijah wore um, in the Old Testament. John the Baptist is pointing out that someone greater than him is coming. And we're supposed to expect from Malachi that the one coming after Elijah, after John, is Yahweh, right? is God on this great day of the Lord. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. He is nobody from nowhere who turns up when we expect Yahweh to show up. He turns up and He's baptized. And um, in the Gospel of Mark, and this is not the case in all the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark, it seems like only Jesus sees what happens next. The Gospel of Mark, it seems like only Jesus sees what happens in the heavens and hears the voice of God. And then we get that information as well. Um, but I want you to notice in verse 10, it says immediately, our Scriptures is just as, it's better, immediately as He was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending on Him 
like a dove. Uh, the word here for torn apart is schism. It, it's to divide almost irreparably. It's this incredible image. Sometimes, you know, you can open something and then close it again. When you schism something, it's real hard to put it back together. Uh, Jesus tears apart the heavens. In other words, He emerges from the water and immediately all heaven breaks loose. Right? Immediately um, what separated us from God no longer separates us anymore. And the Spirit and the Father show up in this amazing epic way. By the way, for a reader of uh, the Jewish Scriptures, this moment of Jesus coming to the Jordan River would be um, reminiscent of Joshua and Elijah and Elisha, who all came to the Jordan River, and when they came, they parted the waters, right? They parted the waters of the river. Jesus doesn't part the waters. Jesus parts the heavens themselves. He opens up the dome of heaven so that we can have access to God. And in this moment, as heaven breaks loose and the Holy Spirit comes down and God the Father speaks, we get this unbelievable introduction to who Jesus is going to be. He's going to be the one who makes a way for us to encounter the God who is or was beyond us. I have a friend who signs all of her emails. You know, you have like a tag at the end of your email, like sincerely or yours truly. She signs all of her emails, God is on the move. I love that, right? God is on the move. And I think as I reflect on what Jesus is doing in this passage as He's introduced to us, it's really this idea that, that God is on the move, right? that God is showing up in the person of Jesus and, and making a way for us where there wasn't a way before. This week, I have, just this week, just in the last six days, I have heard so many stories from you about places where God has been on the move in your life. I've talked to folks in our church who um, celebrated the fact that they were reading the Bible for the first time this week. I've talked to folks in our church who celebrated the fact uh, that they had been fighting through depression and were continuing to fight and gaining victory over that. I, I talked to people in our church this week who celebrated that they were for the first time in their life trying to make Jesus the center of their daily decision-making. I, I saw people this week where... Um, Middle school students invited other middle school students to come to church. I saw people this week who were being united by God and love and the covenant of marriage. I saw people stepping into leadership roles in the church. And every one of those moments was a moment of God being on the move. And that's what Jesus is all about. Jesus is about God being on the move because all heaven breaks loose when the King shows up because His kingdom is coming Notice what happens next. The, the, the third thing that happens in the story, and we have the preparation, we have the baptism and the opening of heaven, and then we have the next immediately. Immediately comes out of the water and all heaven breaks loose, and then immediately the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. This is a weird line. It actually says the Spirit casts him out. He's ex-ballowed. It's the same language that Jesus does with demons. Right? When G Jesus gets rid of a demon, He exbalos it. He casts it out. And here, the Spirit exbalos Jesus. Um, and as the demons are cast out into the darkness, so Jesus is cast out into the darkness by the Spirit. It's really weird. And I kept thinking about why in the world is Jesus cast out the way He casts out demons until I finally realized that the Spirit is casting Jesus into the darkness, and that is really bad news for the darkness, right? 
that, that Jesus is taken into the wilderness and we get the briefest of stories of what happens. We get a lot more details in Matthew and Luke, but Mark's kind of to the point. And Mark says, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, the same number of years the Israelites are in the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan. And he's with the wild beasts, meaning he's tempted by spiritual things and he's afflicted by physical things. And the angels waited on him, meaning Jesus somehow contained both the physical and the spiritual. This is so important. Uh, we, we talk about this a lot, but I think we, um, we need to be reminded that very often when God's kingdom starts showing up in our lives, when um, God makes a way for us to experience His presence, when, when God is on the move in our life, immediately God's kingdom shows up, and then immediately spiritual conflict comes along. It was the story in Jesus' life. It's going to be the story in our lives. That as soon as God starts doing something incredible in our life, um, the enemy comes along and will attack us in angles that seem unrelated. But trust me, they're related. This week, as I've um, talked to people in our church family just in the last six days, uh, I've heard a lot of stories of uh, wilderness wandering, uh, of temptation moments. I've heard stories of um, broken relationships and painful conversations. I've heard stories of threats of self-harm. I've heard stories of um, overwhelming fear that is crippling. I, I know folks that have lost parents and lost spouses this week. I think it's important that in the midst of the good news of the coming kingdom of God, Mark doesn't leave this out. Mark doesn't say, hey, it's all easy, it's all simple, follow God and your life will be perfect. He says, no, your life's going to be like Jesus' life. Immediately God's kingdom shows up, God does amazing things, and immediately the enemy comes along and tries to sabotage that. We don't get a lot of description of what happens in the wilderness. Here's one thing we know from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, and then in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Satan never appears again. Oh, we get his underlings. Jesus casts out a whole bunch of demons, but Satan never makes another appearance in the Gospel of Mark. My reading on that is that those 40 days were the most terrifying days of Satan's life. My reading on that is the last thing in the world he ever wants is to be alone in a place with Jesus again. And I believe that when Satan comes to, to mess with us, when he comes to tempt us, when it feels unrelated to what else is going on, um, he's doing that because he's too afraid to mess with Jesus directly. And if we keep coming back to the one that Satan is too afraid to see again, Perhaps um, we can find uh, the good news of which Jesus speaks. T to get this story, uh, to get the rest of this whole gospel, this whole book that Mark wrote, to understand the kingdom of God of which Jesus is proclaiming and Mark is contrasting with the kingdoms of this world, we have to understand Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And so I got to come back for a moment and to the prophet Isaiah, quoted in this chapter, 
Mark says, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We read this, and I think Mark intends us to read this as John preparing the way for Jesus. Totally buy it. I love it. That's great. 100% right. But it's not the whole story. Because the story of the gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus preparing the way for us. The story of the Gospel of Mark is the story of Jesus making a straight path for us to trod, upon which Satan is afraid to walk, and upon which all heaven has broken loose. The story of Jesus is the story of God opening up a path to Himself again. Albert Schweitzer uh, uses an illustration to explain this idea. He says uh, there's a boy who goes to his friend's house, and while he's there, there's a huge, heavy snowfall, three feet of snow. Probably happened in Wisconsin sometime. And uh, the boy can't get home. He can't get out of his house. Uh, He can't dig through that snow himself. And so he has to call his father. And then his father comes. And his dad, with his his big shoulders and his strong arms, his dad literally trudges forward through that three feet of snow and makes a path for his son to walk after him and leads him home. Schweitzer says, um, we have to understand that what Jesus does not do is Jesus does not say, be just like me, in which case he would want us to make our own path through the snow. Nor does Jesus say, I have done everything for you. You stay at home and just imagine that you made the journey back to your house. No, he says, I have broken the snow. I have made the way. You just follow behind me. That's what Christ invites us to do. That's what Mark wants us to do in this gospel is this understanding that knowing the king means lining up behind him. Knowing the king means lining up behind him. We don't have to do what Jesus did. We simply have to claim what he's done for us. But we don't do that sitting at home by ourselves. We do that on the road following behind Jesus. I've shared before, one of my favorite stories is the story of the death of Peter. Uh, We don't have this in the Bible, um, but as Mark is writing his gospel just months or maybe a couple of years after Peter has died, I'm certain it's on Mark's mind. Mark, in the midst of this persecution by the emperor Nero, writing about another kingdom and another gospel, has to remember the story of how his friend and mentor uh, and leader gave his life. The story is that um, in the midst of that persecution after the great fire in Rome, Christians started fleeing the city. Peter is amongst those who is leaving Rome, and as he's leaving Rome in fear for his life, as so many of his brothers and sisters are doing, he sees, he has a vision of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is walking back in to the city of Rome, and Peter looks to Jesus in this vision, and he says, "'Where are you going, Lord?' And Jesus says, I'm going back into the city to be crucified a second time. And so Peter turns around, and he follows the Savior back into the city. And Peter's eventually arrested and eventually brought before trial. He doesn't renounce his faith, and so he's sentenced to death, sentenced to death in the most painful way the Romans know, which is crucifixion. But Peter is so terrified 
that someone might equate him with Jesus, so terrified that someone might think that his is the path through the snow instead of Christ's, that he begs for the privilege to be crucified upside down so that the world will never confuse his sacrifice with that of his Savior. Because it's not the gospel of Peter or the gospel of Paul or the gospel of Caesar or the gospel of Apple or the gospel of America, or it's the gospel of Jesus. And Paul recognizes and Peter recognizes um, that we aren't worthy. This is what Peter famously said, I'm not worthy to be associated with the cross of Christ. We aren't worthy to be associated with the cross of Christ, and yet we are. We aren't able to schism the heavens and tear apart the veil. We aren't able to terrify the adversary or establish the kingdom of God on earth, yet we walk in the footsteps of Him who makes us worthy and can accomplish all those things. And the world wants us to be satisfied with its kingdoms, with your own little kingdom, but we have a different prayer. And so today, we are invited to line up behind the King, the King who has made a path straight for us, the King who has made a way for us to be united with God, the King who has terrified the enemy, the King who offers a kingdom and a gospel superior to the best this world can offer. This is our proclamation. It is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we pray, Thy kingdom come. Thanks be to God. Amen.